Devin and Morgana have been celebrating midlife love by getting married a hundred times in a hundred countries. They believe grown-up love gets better and more fun, especially for women. Everyone's smarter, wiser. Men are more relationship-ready. And if they're not, it's obvious. Forget anything you were told about being too old or too late for love and adventure. Instead, get fresh new tips on dating, relating, and travel to exotic destinations. And best of all, call in for personal guidance, creating crazy, sexy midlife love in your life. And hello, welcome. We are back in the United States after a great, fun week in Mexico. You can catch that broadcast from the very windy rooftop of the Rosewood Hotel in San Miguel de Allende from two weeks ago. It's posted in the archives. My name is Morgana. This is my husband, Devin. Hola. Hola. Estoy practicando español aún. Okay, so you're you're still, what does aún mean? I'm still. Okay. Yeah, so I'm still working on my Spanish. Um, I won't do that, but uh, <laughs> still practicing. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, That's... Mexico was great. And we discovered this amazing new app for just about anywhere in the world where you speak in your language and then the app spits out what you said in the other language. Yeah, by the way, this is the most common app in the world. It's, it's just, new to me. Okay, it's Google Translate. It's been around for years, but they do have uh, some pretty amazing features in it. If you don't speak the language, I personally think you should try. I would argue that please and thank you, even if you those are the only two words or phrases that you learn are an absolute must, uh, particularly in Mexico, which is a culture that says please and thank you with regularity. It's less common in places like China or in Japan. Um, and yet I know how to say thank you in Chinese. It's pretty much the only thing I know how to say in Chinese. Yeah, no, I mean, I think they, they still say it, but it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's uh, very embedded in, yeah. in Mexico. Honestly, if you want to put a really big happy smile on a stranger's face, just say thank you in their language. They'll be so surprised and appreciative. You know, it takes so little to make people happy. Just that little itty bit. Yeah, no, I I suggest, I remember when I was going, this is a, 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 a story that I went to Iceland. And Icelandic is a notoriously very, very difficult language. Um, and it can take many years to learn if that's what you're trying to do. Um, but I remember learning the phrase talathu ensku. Now, everybody, which basically means do you speak English in Icelandic, um, everybody, you know, sort of like under the age of 70 speaks fluent English because they I think they take a 10 or 11 years of English. Uh, it's very common. Uh, and Icelandic, I think, is only spoken by about 250 or 300,000 people around the world. So it's just, you know, it has its limitations. They know that uh, they spend a lot of time preserving the language. Um, and so I think it's very meaningful to attempt to uh, to say something. And it did. It was a conversation starter. Everybody knew that I was not Icelandic um, and that I was butchering their language, but it did go far and it uh, uh, was useful. So 
Today's topic for the show is love, travel, and living beyond limitation. And if you want to call in, you can call in anytime at 888-627-6008. And I had some things that I wanted to discuss, but Devin brought up Iceland, which makes me want to put you on the spot, Devin. You have the greatest Iceland story ever. And if we're going to. I have a few. I have a few good Iceland stories. If we're going to talk about living beyond limitation, I want to hear the story about the fairy lady. Oh, okay. All right. So uh, now this, this story for me goes back probably 25 years ago. Um, no, no, it wasn't. It was actually more like maybe like 21 years ago, but it's a long time ago. Um, it was just that dark, hazy, despairing period of your life before me. That's correct. <laughs> and so I was, I brought a backpack. I, you know, was there for like two and a half months, something like that. And I had a tent. I traveled with a tent. It was terrible. Um, it was freezing. Even in the summer, it was cold and the weather was marginal at, at best. It was chilly. You're doing a great job selling Iceland. No, Keep but it's it okay. But so here's the thing. I went to Iceland because... It's different. And part of that difference is, is because they've had this very isolated culture. Uh, it's different. It's unique. Uh, it's just a different kind of place. As a matter of fact, I think when they shoot movies that are like intending to be like otherworldly, they choose locations. Did they do Iceland. Game of Thrones in Iceland? I think they may have shot. I mean, they shot all over the world. I think they yeah. shot a, a piece of it somewhere in Iceland. Okay. Um, but so long story short, I was staying at a youth hostel because that was the most affordable place you could stay in. Um, and cause it's just expensive. Like everything is kind of expensive there. In general, they have a good economy. They had a great economy when I was there. And, uh, uh, long story short, I made friends with a, a couple Americans and one of the Americans, the, an American guy basically said, Hey, you know, uh, if, if you were to go to Iceland, and I think this is true as of this day, that if you were to go in their tourism office that's in downtown Reykjavik, uh, you can buy a map to see the Hindle folks. And, and the Hindle folks are? are? Are sort of like the Germanic variation of spirits and entities that live all around like the country. The elves. Exactly. Like, like the elves, like the gnomes, the trolls. Tolkien's. Trolls and well, okay, elves. so okay, so this is where it gets a little complicated. Mm-hmm. So the Icelanders, I think something like at least when I was there, ninety percent. This is one of those things that inspired me to go. Um, I told everybody that I was I was going to go there to scream naked on a fjord. I did that. Uh, that made for an unflattering photograph that I have laying around somewhere. Uh, but I did that. Um, but really, I was drawn to Iceland because I don't know why I was drawn to Iceland, but I needed to go and I ended up going. And so in the tourism board, you can buy a map that basically gives you a map to all of the the places where these invisible creatures dwell. And so long story short, I made friends with this guy who was a student of mythology, and I remember him saying something like, hey, you know, there's this woman who's teaching a class on seeing elves. Do you want to come? And I was like, no, that hasn't, I have no interest in that. What? I didn't. I had no interest in Who that. Who are you? I know. I, but I hadn't, I just, it just, uh, it just seemed too touristy. Okay. So anyway, at some point I saw the guy a few days later 
And I said, hey, how was that class in elf seeing? And he's like, oh, she had to cancel it, something, 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 and whatever. And she called me up and we chatted for a couple of minutes. And so now I'm not into seeing the elves per se, but talking with the woman who does was like, ooh, well, that sounds good. And I didn't, this was towards the end of my trip. And I had a few extra dollars. Like I was really being super cheap. Again, the camping, a lot of camping and that sort of thing. This and misery. is why we're such a great match. Right. Which yeah. makes so, so much sense for mm-hmm. us. Um, so anyway, long story short, I just threw out this idea. I said, hey, man, why don't you, if you've got her phone number, right? Because she's the woman who makes the map. I said, why don't you call her up and say, lunch is on me? Because that would interest me. Let's go sit down and talk with her. And he's like, huh, oh, okay. So he calls her up. Long story short, we meet. She invites us to her house. She's going to give us some scones and some tea, and we're going to talk. And for him, this is all about the mythology, these stories um, that people tell about their culture. And so we arrive, and she sits us in the living room. They brings out tea, and she has a student there who also sees the elves. And we're sitting in this woman's living room. And this guy who's dragging you to see her was really skeptical i don't think he well would... no no i i yeah we'll, we'll get there i promise okay, okay. i promise I'm just helping. yes no i love the, the helping part so uh we're sitting there and i don't know if he was skeptical that was not maybe that's your interpretation of what happened i don't know if he was deliberately doing this but he was into the mythology portion of this and so you know he's kind of starting out you know, asking her some basic questions. Well, you know, when did you start seeing these? And she's kind of saying, well, you know, I was born with this thing. And she kind of goes on to say that, hey, listen, 90% of Icelanders uh, believe in elves and the gnomes and the Hilda folks, but they, they don't necessarily believe that I see them. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, speaking of which, uh, when did you start making up these stories about seeing the Hilda folks? And she said, well, you know, and she, by the way, she was looking at the ground the whole time and she spoke English, but she felt uncomfortable with it. So she was having this friend translate for her. And, and she kept saying, well, you know, this is, um, you know, I see them, but I'm uncomfortable by it. Uh, But it is part of my experience as a person and it's what it is. And, and there we go. And I get called upon, like if they're building a road, somebody will ask me who's living here and they'll build around it. I mean, they do all kinds of nutty things. So he's like, oh, yes, of course. Of course, I didn't mean anything by it. And uh, he backed off of the story. And, and then, you know, he asked her a handful of more questions about, you know, Norse and Icelandic sagas and things like that. And then she, he eventually said, so, you know, when did you... When did you think this was a good story to start, you know, making up? And uh, she was like, well, you know, I, I'm not making it up. This is just part of my experiences. And, and she kind of kept going back to that. And, you know, for many li- years, I lived sort of very ostracized because people didn't think what I was saying was true and they couldn't see it. And I didn't understand how. Uh, and then, he, you know, and she said, even that, that plant behind you has a little creature who's living in the plant. And I always water the plant every day because I want the little creature to have water. And right. And I'm remaining silent this whole time. And so the third time he does the same kind of thing. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 of course, of course. And he kind of circles back around 
and asks a very similar question. And she goes, well, do you remember when you were about nine years old and your father uh, pulled up in that green station wagon and he took you for ice cream and you had Rocky Road and your dad had, you know, a, a strawberry swirl or something like that. And do you remember when he said to you uh, that he and, and your mother were getting a divorce? Do you remember that? And so she goes into this long, very, very detailed story about his life. It was like it was like there were way, way too many details for it to just be some generic story because I didn't identify with the story. But his mouth dropped. And basically she was saying, well, here's this feeling of loss. And this is how I feel a lot of the time. Because, again, I see these things, but people, even though they believe in the spirit world, don't necessarily believe that I'm having commun direct communications with them. And because of that, I have this ostracized thing. And that's where I'm like, okay, now we're, now we're getting somewhere. So I was like on the edge of my seat. And at the time I started, I was studying at that point, everything, all kinds of, you know, unseen worlds kinds of things. So it was really like, ooh, we're, I'm down with this story. Um, and so we sat and, we, and she and I, started just talking about life. And she was like, I've been trying to figure out what's wrong with me for 40 years. And so she started bringing up at her own book collection and we were reading some of the same material, trying to just peel back the veil of what's happening. And is there something beyond it? So anyway, he said nothing, not a word. And so at some point, like an hour later after, you know, she said, oh, I've got to go. We, we, you know, we, we left and he was, white he was white and we're walking down the street it's you know we're in the middle of summer um and it's raining not surprisingly we don't have an umbrella and while we're walking he stops walking and i kind of hey what's you know are you okay and he looks at me and he was completely dead serious and i think part of the reason why he was into the mythology thing is because well yes i can believe it as a story i can't necessarily believe it as a truth I can believe it in, you know, like, oh, it's a universal truth. I don't necessarily can see it as like, hey, there's these unseen beings running around that are beyond my comprehension. More importantly, um, he was like, he, he literally looked at me. He goes, this moment has changed my life forever because this woman who did not know him at all um, just told him some very detailed information about his own life and he couldn't get, he couldn't wrap his head around it. He couldn't he couldn't rectify that that not only was she not making up these stories, that she had an ear into something that he couldn't possibly have explained. And so it was really sort of a, a remarkable I mean, Iceland for me turned out to be a really life changing in many ways. I mean, again, we could spend the whole hour talking about Iceland, but that particular moment uh, particularly was really kind of one of those, ooh, this is a juicy bit of remarkable stuff. Well, we still have to get married there. I want to meet that lady. Let's, oh, I mean, the, the one who married, who sees the elves? Yeah, no, we should totally do that. And then I have a maybe friend. Maybe she could marry us. Maybe, but, but there is a woman named Brigitte John's daughter who was uh, friends with the Dalai Lama. And she was also, I think right now, she was like the head of the pirate party, which is kind of like a very 
you know, has a, is a force uh, in politics. And she was in parliament for years and she's a, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a celebrity uh, in Iceland. Yeah, so, we have to meet her to have her in the wedding. But, well, oh my God, let's, let's have a wedding with invisible people. I'm in. I'm, sign me up. I will, I will find her and I will, you know, we'll track her down. Hopefully she's with us because now it's been, it's been 20 years. And so I don't think she was all that young then. So hopefully she'll be around for us. Uh, from the sound of her, it sounds like she was just such a powerful life force. And we know people who live really, really long times. So yes, I'll, I'll trust that she is. Yeah. Um, what a way to kick off this whole discussion of, living a life without limitation. We just assume so many rules that may not actually apply. And so many of them we heard and we invent and we lock ourselves into. Uh, The reason I wanted to talk about it is last week, my oldest friend in life, we were babies when my grandmother and her mother were pushing us in strollers and met each other back in like 1968. And so for the first, you know, several years of our lives, we were always at each other's houses. So there's this feeling of she's family and there's a feeling that her parents are family. And I hadn't seen them for a long time, except when my father died, I, they came to my, my memorial for my father two years ago, the West coast Memorial. And it's like no time had elapsed. And I got an email last week that my friend's father died, which ugh, is just like a punch in the gut. Uh, you know, there are people where you may not see them for a long time, but it again, it just feels like no time has passed. And it's just the most kind of frustrating thing that I learn more about everyone I know after they die. Cause I know this person in this really, including my dad, like I know everybody in these little tiny slivers that relate to me. So I've got like this very narcissistic relationship with everybody. I knew him in the context of my life, but he had this huge life before and outside of me. And this is Urim, what I found out from his daughter, Tall, that blew my mind was when, so he was born in Israel. And when he graduated from high school, he decided he wanted to be a journalist. So he wrote to Columbia University in New York and told them that he would be enrolling in their journalism school. He didn't apply. He didn't ask. He didn't take the tests. He didn't fill out the application forms. He just wrote them a letter informing that in the fall, he would be taking their classes in journalism. And then he hopped on a boat. And for the next many months, he was, you know, traveling across the ocean up to Canada and then wending his way down from Canada to New York City and then showed up at Columbia University and said, OK, I'm ready to take my classes. And Columbia responded, well, we looked at your transcript and you're an undergrad and the classes you want are graduate classes. So Columbia University admitted him as an undergraduate and let him take all those graduate classes that he wanted. And I'm like, I never knew you could do that. I'm the kind of person who like, what are the rules? Okay, here's my application fee. Here are my essays. Here are my test scores. 
please, sir, will you let me in? Like it never even occurred to me that it could be done a different way. And how often do we do that? You know, this is like how you got into travel writing. You just sort of invented your way into this, this niche that didn't exist when you started. And you may want to talk about that. Well, I've done that a number of, I've done that a number of, of times with a number of things. And I think, I think there it's, I think it's really important. I mean, one of those moments are where we say, well, the youth is wasted on the, on the young. This is one of those times where it's absolutely not wasted on the young. It's where you just sort of like, okay, I've got a pair of gonads and that's not to suggest somebody who doesn't have physical gonads, doesn't have the power and force to go crush it somehow. But really what it was is, uh, you know, I kind of just, I, I remember having a conversation. I was, I had, matter of fact, going back to Iceland, there was this woman who's now this parliament person. And uh, she, she and I used to write these letters back and forth. After I visited, I met her a couple times and then I came back. Like it wasn't a romantic thing. She was just like one of those people that, you know, she was just a, a rock star. She was just somebody who kicked butt and she was working it out. And I was impressed and jealous. And and she'd write me these letters with a whole slew of like, here's all the impressive projects I'm working on. And, you know, I would write back, oh, I'm looking for a job, you know. So it wasn't like, <laughs> it was ridiculous. And so out of almost like a panic, I wrote some weird little story and attached it to the email and sent it to her. And she wrote back, well, I, I don't know if you saw the fourth, the fourth uh, link from the bottom of all my list of projects, but, you know, I'm putting together a, a book proposal and we're taking submissions. The submissions are over with, but if you send me something by Thursday, I'll make sure that it gets read. And so I wrote another silly little story. And I sent it to her and I didn't hear back from her, but I heard back from an Italian publisher who basically said, hey, the Dalai Lama's on page 106 and you're on page 52. Congratulations. And it was the greatest high ever. And then I remember writing a a friend of mine. I'm like, oh, my God, this was this is like what? And because on top of all of this, I was told when I was 10 or in the third grade, whatever, however old you are in the third grade, maybe I was eight. Anyway, I turned in some writing assignment and the teacher, Mrs. Jones, may she roll over her at her grave, uh, handed me back a writing assignment. And she goes, well, young man, you should take a lot of woodshop classes. You certainly won't ever be a writer. Ugh. Right. But I listened to her. to tell a child that. Well, but that's, you know, this is in a different time and place mm-hmm. in terms of psychology, but that's what she did. And by the way, I heeded her advice. I took a lot of woodshop classes. I know how to. And I appreciate all yeah, of it now. I can fix a lot. Of, <laughs> I can fix a lot of stuff. But so, uh, so long story short, for me to get published anywhere as a writer was like, who, who knew? But this was like, oh my gosh, I want to get myself involved with whatever this is. I was so high after getting published. And so I started calling up everybody that I knew. And I did similar things like this in other kinds of like, ooh, I want to explore this career. Um, I, I I called and wrote everybody that I knew that might conceivably 
want or need a writer, or maybe they knew a person who might need a writer. And so that's what I started doing. And I got on the phone with a woman who was a publisher of a Spanish language magazine, uh, Nuestra Gente. Oddly, I was speaking Spanish at the beginning of the show. Um, and so I said, I want to write for you. And she goes, oh, how's your Spanish? And I'm like, at the time, it was non-existent. I, well, I, I don't speak Spanish. She goes, well, then I don't need you. I need people who write in Spanish. And I said, I totally get that. Um, and I said, one day, though, if you're ever in a bind, think of me. And she goes, well, but I, I won't unless you speak Spanish. Are you taking Spanish classes? No. But if you are in a bind, please think of me. And with everything she said, I just kept answering. I totally get it. I understand. But if you're in a bind, please think of me. And she goes, well, I, I won't click. And I don't blame her hanging up on me. You're, such a, you're such a hustler that I'm not. I'm so in awe. Well, she, so anyway, long story short, she called me up at nine o'clock one night, like a month or two later and said, um, I need 350 words on the health benefit of the chili pepper. And I'm in a bind. And I said, uh, you know, when do you need it? I need it in that, in an hour. And I said, uh, uh, where where would I, do you have an idea of where I would source any of this information? She goes, I don't care. I don't care where you get it from. You just go find me something about the health benefits of the chili pepper. And I hung up that phone and I'm like, wow, I'm in a bind. What am I going to do? Uh, but what I did was I started searching the internet. I mean, this was, the internet was new, um, but I found a few few things about health benefits of chili peppers. And I wrote it down, and I didn't know if it was factually correct. Um, I don't think she cared. Um, I think what she cared was is that I had written a story uh, that was coherent and that she was, in fact, in a bind. Um, and so I sent it in. And 15 minutes after I sent it in, she goes, this will be fine. Um, by the way, you can't be Devin Galladay in my Spanish language magazine. Uh, pick a name pick a Latin surname. And I said, um, I'll be Pancho Sanchez, <laughs> which made sense at the time. It was the only, the only sort of Latino name I could think of. And so long story short, I started writing a whole series of different articles. Pancho Sanchez uh, would write these articles that were like little movie reviews and book reviews and little things. And I, and it was always a little, Okay, you know, I needed it in, in an hour, 350 words. And so there'd be these little, these little teeny articles that would be like, here'd be the main article. And then be a little tiny article somewhere on the bottom that would fill up a little hole somewhere in the magazine. And that was Pancho Sanchez's job. And I wrote a whole, a whole bunch of little articles and not in Spanish. She translated them. Um, and then one day she actually called me up and said, uh, listen, uh, I need I need somebody to be somebody's mother. Um, and I, you know, I'm in a bind. And I said, great, what do you need? She goes, well, I need you to be somebody's mother and they're buying Christmas presents. And, and I need you to buy, you know, write a story. And I don't know what happened and it didn't matter. Um, and I'm like, when do you need it? She goes, well, I can give you a day. Okay, I'll go, you know, it was a much larger, longer article about Christmas day. Um, and I had to do a little bit of research as somebody's mother. And she goes, oh, by the way, 
you can't be Devin Galladay as somebody's mother in my Spanish language magazine. Pick a name. And uh, I became Luisa May Gonzalez. <laughs> and I wrote a couple of, you know, a small a couple articles maybe as Luisa May. And, so you're my wife, Luisa May Gonzalez. We're suddenly right. a far less traditional marriage than I thought we were. Right. And, you know, listen, I, you know, what I would imagine is, is that there are magazines and situations and things that happen all over the world all the time where it's just like I'm in a bind. And so, you know, when I was starting out as a writer, I was willing to kind of do anything. And there's a certain uh, youthful enthusiasm that can come with that kind of thing about limitations where it's like, okay, I will, I'll figure it out. Like a buddy of mine, a, a guy, I mean, I haven't seen him in a long time, so I don't know if he's still a buddy, but um, he was like, you know, he was born in Indiana or something like that. And it was like, I'm going to be an actor and I don't care what it takes. And when the day he turned 18, he drove from Indiana to Los Angeles and slept in his car until he found like four guys who had no money and they moved into uh, some crummy apartment 30 years ago. And he worked every rotten job in the world as long as he could go on auditions. And after he did it for like five years, he got a few breaks, but like five years was not, okay, I'm not giving up. He was just going to keep showing up over and over again. And then he eventually uh, got on some pretty big shows and then he became a series regular and did some kind of amazing stuff. But it was like, I'm going to show up and I don't care what you think. That's a really huge one. And I think we do get better at that part, at least. I do, and and the women I know get better at the not caring what you think part as we get older. Um, Devin and I were just talking about how we took our first in-person West Coast swing class over the weekend in over a year. It was amazing. It was three hours with one of the biggest West Coast dance champion, genius celebrity, and a great teacher. And I didn't notice until three hours in that oh, I this is ridiculous that I had my shoes on the wrong feet, like I had the right on the left. <laughs> it was like really obvious, but I, you know, and it was like, oh, maybe that's why my balance was oddly wobbly. But who cares? Like that is the amazing thing is I cared, like you know, Earth swallow me now biggest fear of my life was humiliation when from a really young age and now it <laughs> you know it's just like I at, at a certain point you just realize that everybody is so involved in themselves they aren't paying attention anyway so and so it, what yeah, it so what it's which is that's a huge release of limitation that's liberating um on a kind of on a professional point this is sort of what I've been working with people for 30 years is limiting beliefs, limitations with career and love and life. And what I've noticed is money. We we haven't really talked much about money on the show and we probably should have a show about money because it's such a like big issue in relationship. And it's your wheelhouse. And it's my wheelhouse. Um, but money for the last 30 years of coaching thousands of clients, money is the number one excuse for what we can't have, do, or be. Right. And so that's why that's kind of 
where I focus is on transforming that dynamic of like this scary monster of scarcity to this lover who wants to be with you and stay with you forever. Um, I have a gift if you're listening to the show and if money is in any way a pain in your life, and it doesn't mean you don't have money. I have coached clients on public assistance and I have coached billionaires. And anybody who has money knows that the money stuff doesn't go away when you have more money. It just changes and sometimes gets bigger. It really, it affects your relationships. Sometimes you become a target. Sometimes you're really great at making money and even better at getting rid of it. But the drama and the root cause, it's kind of a through line wherever you are on the spectrum of, you know, how many zeros are in your bank account. So I have a gift uh no strings attached just go to moneymagnetgift.com and i'll put the link in the show notes moneymagnetgift.com it is in my opinion my very best audio class ever carol and conneth listened to it and made eighty-seven thousand dollars in the next 24 hours Perry made $10,000 in the next week after listening to it by asking herself after listening to the show, what would Morgana do? So I have my own little WWMD, what would Morgana do? Uh, Lots and lots of success stories that you can see at my website, um, MorganaRay.com. But really, we're going to move on. But I, I, it's such a, it's such a thing. And when you improve your relationship with money, and this is this is a really big deal, is you improve your relationship with love too. Because your relation, your relationship with money, all money issues, when you dig deep enough below the issue, it all money issues really are love issues. So how you show up in life, your relationship with yourself and your relationship with life and your relationship with love shifts too. And you don't have to address them all separately. You can do it all at one time just by changing your relationship with this imaginary money person. So moving on from money limitation, and we talked about my friend's father, Urim. What else did I want to talk about today? And, you know, we're talking about limitation and we were talking about the exuberance of youth, but... It doesn't really end. Like you get to keep making up your own rules. This whole thing of Devin and I getting married a hundred times, it's just like, we didn't ask anybody for permission. We just started doing it. We just made it up. Uh, There is one crucial bit that I didn't discuss Uh before. Mm -hmm. And it's really important one. This actually came up in a conversation I was having uh, with a friend. It was much more about religion and stuff at the time, but it's this line uh, that, that actually comes from James. I'm not going to bore you with the biblical attributions, but it says faith without works is dead. And so what does that mean? That means it's great to have the youthful exuberance to say, I'll do that thing. It's another thing entirely to follow through on it. So in other words, when that woman said, called me up at nine o'clock at night and said, I'm in a bind, I could have easily said, oh, yeah, no, I'm busy. I'm watching, I'm watching television or whatever. 
whatever it was that I was doing at the time, I could have come up with some sort of a rationale or excuse to not do the thing that I set myself up to do. So that means when those opportunities showed up or fell on my lap or fell from the sky or however they did, at some point I also had to be committed in order to take the action when the opportunity arose, which is something, you know, like I, we have a, a friend of ours who we've known for a long time who she was a sculptor and she was doing very well and she was successful. And then she saw some program about roller derby and decided I'm going to do that. We interviewed her. Oh well, yeah, yeah, that's right. We, Rebecca we Nimberg, take a look at early 2020. We, she's a hoot. Yeah, no, she's, she's a hoot. And in roller derby, she's known as Demolicious. Yes, no, that's a thing. It's a hilarious name. Uh, she is fantastic. But that's what she did. She was just like, not only did she was like, oh, my gosh, I need to go do that. She went out and took the action. And, you know, when, when we started, I, I remember having a private conversation with uh, uh, Rebecca on this very subject. And I'm like, well, but there's so much to putting together a roller derby league. So long story short, she was the person, one of the, the, I think she was the founder of the Los Angeles Derby Dolls and they have, you know, a whole league out here. Uh, When she started, there was nothing. I mean, they didn't have a track. They didn't have skates. They didn't have pads. They didn't have anything. And so she was, I remember her telling me, oh yeah, it's uh, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And that's what she did. She just kept taking the action over and over and over to fulfill the idea. And some of the ideas that we get that are really good, uh, just take a few actions. And others like Rebecca's are like, oh, no, you just keep showing up. For me, it was just easy to say, okay, if you're in a bind, think of me. What you're talking about is bringing up something for me that I think I'd also like to mention is it's really, really helpful to make friends with fear. I had a practice and it wasn't intentional. It just sort of happened and I noticed it that for 10 or 15 years, I would do something every month that terrified me. And it wasn't like I was searching out to do something that terrified me. And it wasn't that I was doing anything that would kill me. Although, you know, there, there were possibilities sometimes, but I'm not like not good at jumping out of planes because I'm afraid of heights. So that's not one of the things, but like an opportunity would just show up to do something terrifying, but worth doing. And there'd be like a, Ooh, yikes. My, my like, yay. Oh no. Cycle is like, wow. You want me to speak in Norway? You want, you're inviting me to Bali. You're, you know, it's like, I'm going to speak in front of a million people. What? Terrifying sounds great. So I'm going to do it. And I got used to the, like, this kind of cycle of, oh, my God, this is so great to that that would lead up to when it gets closer. Oh, Earth, swallow me now. And then and then going further and it being really wonderful. And I just got so used to saying yes to good things that terrified me that I just developed a real affection for the experience of fear. And I want to really make a distinction between 
the kind of fear that you want to dive into and run towards and the kind of fear you want to say, I respect you or I respect this fear. And no, I'm saying no. And I think the fear that that you want to like move into is the one that makes you bigger. It feels expansive. It's like, ah, terrifying. But there's something there that makes you a bigger person, moves you into the world and the life you want to be, as opposed to, ooh, I'm feeling some like red flags here about this guy that I'm going to go on a date with. That kind of fear, I would just say there's no date worth that, you know, um, and and by all means, make sure that if you go on a date, that there is some kind of safety in place. But that's sort of, that's how like my favorite thing in my business came out of some stranger on a dating app inviting me to Bali. By the way, if I were my own mother, (laughs) I would have died to see my daughter do something as foolish as this. So I don't recommend it, but I, I met the guy I asked and any, he seemed safe enough. So I got on a plane on our second date, by the way, and my husband is here. Nothing happened. It was the worst second date ever. We did not get along. We never kissed. Nothing happened. I moved out after a couple of days, but it got me to Bali. And while I was in Bali, I fell in love with Bali and I felt like, oh my God, Every woman should be here. Every woman should experience this. And two months later, I was leading a live event. And I filled my first money goddess retreat, which is my favorite thing in my business to do. And it, it came from, it wasn't even about the guy. I had, and this, you know, I'm very intuitive sometimes. I had had a conversation with the universe at the beginning of the year. And it's just, you know, everybody has their own new year ritual. I don't do resolutions, but I will go, okay, universe, what wants to happen this year? And then I'll just listen for what, what I hear, what comes back to me, what my intuition is. And I asked that in 2012 and I suddenly saw this Asian marketplace and I was like, what Asia scary far away. I might fall off the earth. You know, it's on the other side. And I was like, are you sure? And the universe said back to me, yeah. And then I was like, well, what about Australia instead? And and the universe said, well, yeah, that's okay too. <laughs> but Asia, and I was like, Europe? And 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 she said, well, that's that's okay too, but Asia. And I was like, oh, okay. And I received two different invitations to Asia that year. And the first one I turned down because it was not a good situation. But the second one, I, I was like, well, I know I'm supposed to go to Asia. So I'm going to Asia. And I found out why after the fact, because I knew that I was supposed to go, you know, that just that intuitive feeling. But there was the fear of falling off the planet, which is why I needed to go with somebody who felt safe enough to get me there. And then we mutually decided, ooh, this is this is just not working out. Wish you best. And and we parted ways quickly, but it got me where I was supposed to go. Uh, and I love when when you just get that intuitive hit to do something 
that doesn't make sense until after the fact, which I think is, you know, what our whole getting married multiple times was. Devin had his, he calls it a goof. And it became the most, it's been just the most wonderful relationship practice. You'd never know where something leads. It just helps to exercise that muscle to, uh, to be open and to be able to tell the difference inside yourself of what is truly dangerous and what is merely terrifying. Well, and I think too. I think terrifying is too it's strong. A, a it's word. too it's, strong a word. I was I mean, exaggerating. I, right? No. I yeah. mean, I appreciate the enthusiasm. I mean, I think when for me when when we got married, you know, the second time in in Puerto Vallarta, it was a goof. It was a silly idea that I could have easily said, "Oh, oh, that's silly. I'm not going to do that." Um, and I'm really glad that I did. And it would have been like. Hey, you know, I could have said, "Hey, I don't need you. You don't speak Spanish." I could have easily said, "Oh, yeah, you know, you're totally, you're totally right. Um, I'll just abandon this idea and I'll go to school or I'll do whatever traditional thing I think I'm supposed to do in order to get it." And I think, you know, for the the small risks that I took in order to get sort of like larger res- rewards, well, a lot of it had to do ultimately when I look back and. I mean, I think a lot of since since I'm not necessarily talking to kids, right? I'm assuming if you're on the show, you're kind of like us, kind of living your best middle age life. I think there is a just a small sense of like, okay, I could end up with a little bit of egg on my face if this doesn't go the way that I had hoped. But if that was the case, that's fine. But what what frequently happens is you take this little risk that may be a little bit weird to do. Um, and then you all of a sudden you get some kind of a fantastic reward out of the thing. Like I wasn't supposed to be a writer and I am deep into the second draft of my next book. And I've written hundreds of articles that have appeared in numerous websites and, and magazines. And, you know, that's uh, that not necessarily like a huge deal within itself, but it was definitely not what was in the cards for me. And it's huge for you. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, listen, it's afforded me. I'm, you know, I've visited more than 80 countries because of the writing. And leading my retreat in Bali seemed like the greatest idea in the world, easiest thing to fill. And then I did get scared. Like, I I joke about terrifying. But it felt like that in the moment because I was so scared that I was going to, like, let my women down. And then they were so happy. I was like a drug addict. Oh, my God, I want more of this. Let's do this again. And so now I've done it, I think, nine times. I have to go and count because, you know, this thing that and I still get scared because I still want to make sure that I deliver for every woman. But it is the yummiest kind of fear. Um, Devin proposing to me, marrying Devin was really, really scary because I was so happy with the things, the way things were. And I was scared that if we get married, what if it ruins all of it? Then a year later, and again, you know, you make up your own rules. We were married for a whole year before we moved in together. And I was afraid that living together was going to ruin everything. That was six years ago. We're still together. (laughs) I'm still together and happy. But it's that like 
Um, but is this the direction that grows me in the direction I want to go? It's just the more you practice that my friend Tiamo, and I love his name means I, I love you. Uh, he, he says that fear is the one thing that gets smaller when you run towards it. So you really want to, you know, just practice feeling that good fear. It's, it's like fear is like oh, a I don't flag. Think... It's like a flag in the sand that says treasure below. If, if, it, if it wasn't, if it didn't matter, it would be like brushing your teeth. Eh. Well, I, I think it's less, for me, it's less about the fear and mm. more about the bravery. In other words, taking action in spite of your fear towards the thing that you want or the thing that you want to explore. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, and I, I think we all have fear and I think, I think Tiamo is right. Fear gets smaller the more you confront it because most of the time the stuff that's rattling around in your head doesn't actually come to pass. It doesn't, it doesn't manifest into anything that's really worth, you know, and I, and I think as we get older, it just becomes progressively more obvious that we just, okay. Yeah. No, there's going to be some strife. Um, it's just whether or not you want to suffer. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think, I think there's pain. That's like when you step on a tack and then there is suffering that after you've removed the tack, you're now worried about the next tack you're going to step on. And that's, that's the part that I think we can avoid. Well, or because I also think it's useful to worry about and not step on another tack. Right. But then I think that just comes from learning. Like, okay, yeah. watch where you're stepping. Well, here's, here's the thing about, I know a lot of people push, you know, forgive, you must forgive. And what, in my experience, when you realize that you saw the red flags and it may take a while to get there and that you can protect yourself from that experience in the future and you can forgive yourself from that for for experiencing that or allowing that to happen then forgiving the other person just happens spontaneously i don't think forgiving is something you should force i think that that like doubles especially if there was abuse involved or if it's ongoing that to me is just doubling down on the abuse um I don't believe in forcing forgiveness, but when you are safe and you know you are safe, when you can give yourself safety, the other person becomes irrelevant. And that's when forgiveness happens because it the other person is not what really matters because you move forward in life with relationship with yourself and the people who are not in your highest good don't belong and you can leave them aside. You can even love them. You can love them and leave them aside and wish them every blessing in the world. But forgiveness, I think that that is simply sort of like an autonomous byproduct of taking the lesson, making yourself safe and forgiving yourself. Boy, did that get heavy fast, huh? Yeah, no, that's um, that was not lightweight stuff. Yeah. 
What's how did you forgive? You forgave your dad. You wrote a whole book to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I read a book. Anytime I think of forgiveness, I think of a book by Neil Donald Walsh mm-hmm. called The Little Soul in the Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I mean, the book is probably 30 years old. Now. By the way, his wife loves my book. Oh, good. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so I think he wrote a book about sort of the nature of forgiveness. And I think, I think a lot of it comes down to, um, I'll give you the, just the briefest synopsis of the book, which was there's this little soul and he's now told he gets to go to earth and have experiences. And uh, so, you know, God is saying, well, what, what kind of things do you want to experience? And he thought about it. And, he, and then he's like, well, I, I really don't know. I haven't thought about it. And, and God or the universe or whatever is talking to him says, well, I, I don't know. How about try forgiveness? That's a good one. And uh, the little soul is like, yeah, no, I'll totally do that. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be the person who forgives. And then, of course, he's like, huh, well, what am I going to forgive? And, uh, you know, the universe is like, well, I don't know. That's a that's a that's a quagmire. <laughs> it's a, it's challenging. You know, it's a challenging thing. Well, we're going to come up with something. And then another soul comes out and says, you know, I'm I'm light. I'm light, just like you. But for you to forgive something, um, it's going to have to be important. And for me to do something terrible to you that would be worthy of forgiveness, I'm going to have to stop being who it is that I am. So I give you this opportunity. I give you this opportunity at forgiveness. And so I may forget who I am by doing this thing that's not, you know, that's going to challenge your forgiveness. And so, you know, anyway, it's, it's sort of like this interesting negotiation. It kind of like takes well, what are we doing? Because it implies frequently, you know, I mean, we can point at some really horrible things that happen in society and around the world in our history as human beings that we could argue is, well, this is unforgivable. And maybe, maybe that's true. But I think when you start looking at it from a perspective that, um, well, maybe there's more to this notion of, there's more to notions of love and compassion and forgiveness than maybe meets the eye. Maybe it isn't that this is an evil person that's done this wrong to us, right? Some girl who hurt my feelings by jilting me, you know? Um, And maybe there's a larger, a larger purpose to these kinds of things. I don't know if Neil Donald Walsh is right or not, but it opens the door to kind of see things in a new light. And I think that's really important. Well, and we're in our last minute. So there are a few things that yep. I want to cover to wrap it up. Again, my gift for transforming your relationship with money from this unforgivable monster of scarcity who tells you that you're not good enough and you can't have this to a lover who wants to be with you. That you can have for free, no strings attached, go to Money Magnet Gift. Dot com. Yeah, that's a good idea. And since we're talking of Neil Donald Walsh, his wife, I landed at a lunch table with her about 10 years ago. And she knew who I was and she loved my book, Financial Alchemy. So you can find that at my website, MorganaRay.com, or just go to Amazon. But if you go to Amazon, go back to my website, MorganaRay.com, 
because under the book tab, you can get a free secret bonus gift that is a two and a half hour Q&A call that nobody on Amazon knows about, only you know about. Um, and speaking of forgiveness, and we did not rehearse this or plan this, but our guest next week is all about adultery. And oh, wow. right, the, she, her book is The Adulterer's Wife, and she is all about the best revenge is not needing to get revenge. So I think that this is a really good segue into next week, really talking about forgiveness and living your best life and not being limited by the, the wounds and trespasses that arise in life because we really want you to have limitless love and abundance and the fullest expression of who you are meant to be in this lifetime as you as you desire and you determine. So that's it for Crazy Sexy Midlife Love and today's episode all about love, travel, and living beyond limitation. Next week is about adultery. We don't condone it, but what happens if it happens? Let's make sure that your life continues to be fantastic. So we'll see you next week at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Mwah. Thank you for listening to Crazy Sexy Midlife Love. Please sign up to join our free love family at crazysexymidlifelove.com to get alerts to live shows, call in and ask questions, or just listen in. And ladies, don't forget to download Devin's free ebook, Women Are Smarter Than Men and Other Secrets Marriage Minded Women Need to Know. Also available at crazysexymidlifelove.com. <laughs>